0: Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. Today, I'm at one of London Ambulance Service's purpose-built control rooms and training centres. My podcast guest has spent the last 21 years at the heart of the service, and her passion for her role and the unsung heroes she's trained and works alongside is unwavering. Jules Lockett is General Manager of the Emergency Operations Centre, part of the senior management team, and has dedicated the last 14 years of her career to training 999 operators to perform to the highest standard and save lives when every second counts in the busiest emergency ambulance service in the world. As many as 7,999 calls are made every day, 365 days a year, here in London. Jules is also co-chair of the London Ambulance Service LGBT Network and on the committee of the National Ambulance LGBT Network. So no doubt has been busy over the last few weeks as LGBTQ plus celebrations have filled the capital with a whole month of events culminating in the Pride Parade at the weekend. Jules, it's really lovely to see you here again. It's been a little while. How has Pride been for you? Good afternoon, Helen. It's been great to meet you again. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to come and see
1: us. Pride's been fantastic, as you could imagine. London has been celebrating. It's been a while since we've been able to celebrate, if I'm honest, and the community has been out in strength. People have been lining the streets. It has been the most incredible buzz that Most the NHS get, but of course, the ambulance service, especially after the last couple of years with the pandemic, have been seen in a very great light. So it's been great to get that accolade and it's been great to meet people in London and our staff get the opportunity to be out and about again, which is
0: great. That's made such a big difference, hasn't it? Not only have these celebrations not been able to take place because of the pandemic, but also it's the 50th anniversary of the Pride Parade. And I gather that a couple of days ago, it was the original 1972 route that the parade took.
1: Indeed, it's those people, that the pioneers
0: of Pride
1: in London, to give us that opportunity to be able to be on the streets to celebrate who we are as individuals. And yes, it's it's been a completely different route to, to probably what most people would have known before we kind of came down from Baker Street and that sort of wound our way through London and now we've come through Park Lane uh, along past the Ritz and then down in Trafalgar Square and, and to sort of what we call a traditional finish but it's been great it's been great to see people packed along the route and the the recognition of the LGBT community both in London and across the NHS and, and for us as an ambulance service has, has been great to, to soak up.
0: And for you as an ambulance service you have a significant LGBT community here don't you working at the control room?
1: Yeah, absolutely. and across their whole organisation, but certainly in our control room, certainly, I think it's a great support network for each other. People can be their self at work at the London Ambulance Service, and it, it allows them to be comfortable, to be confident, and also it allows us to learn. It allows us to learn, it allows us to treat and to make sure that the community of LGBT is supported correctly across London.
0: And I know that's something that's really dear to your heart. And in the introduction, I mentioned there, not only are you on the committee of the National Ambulance LGBT Network, but you're also co-chair of the London one too. So it's something you dedicate a lot of time to, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I work with Lee and Alex as the other co-chairs in London, and they've done the most incredible support for our colleagues. They're both operational, and I'm based in the control room. So we've got a, broad range of understanding and and sort of messages of support we can get out to our colleagues. It's been so exciting to see people really out and about again for Pride. The build-up through Pride Month now has been great. That opportunity to to have social events as well again, because I think that's really important. As much as we work together as as LGBT community, it's great to be out to socialise and it's great to be able to be out to celebrate with other people. And as I say, that route of London is incredible.
0: You've got NHS embroidered on your uniform. Do you find that when you're out and about doing whatever events, not necessarily... LGBT, but whatever events now, can you feel that warmth and appreciation? I'm thinking back now to the Thursday night, Jules, and the Thursday nights when with my children and family, I stood on our balcony in Shepherd's Bush and I shed a few tears every Thursday night because it just overwhelmed me, the generosity, support, the kindness, the love, the dedication that the NHS put into the pandemic to keep us all safe. Do you feel now that people are coming up to you on the street and? And, and saying, shaking your hand or thanking for all that.
1: It can be quite overwhelming, if I'm honest. I think you could speak to any of my colleagues, nearly 7,000 of us in, in the organisation, and we'll all say, we're just doing a job. Because it is, it, it's it's our job, it's it's our chosen career. But it, it can be overwhelming. It, it was great. It was great to be part of some of those celebrations on the Thursday evenings. I can remember standing outside at the front of our Waterloo headquarters And sort of joining in that camaraderie of people. And I I agree with you, shedding a tear, getting emotional, getting the goosebumps. I get goosebumps every time I walk in the control room. After 21 years, there is nothing better than walking into one of our control rooms and hearing the staff delivering what they should be doing, that they've been trained to do. And knowing that every call that they've helped somebody... That's, it. that's incredibly powerful. And to have any small part of that is great. And when you get that recognition and that accolade, it's hard not to be emotional. Because for us, it is, it's a job. We pull on a uniform. We think it protects us. But when we take the uniform off, sometimes there's things that still impact on us. But when other people recognise that in you, it does make you stop and think sometimes that what you do is, is a good thing. And I think sometimes we take it for granted that it's our job. And I feel very fortunate to do the job that I do.
0: We'll explain in a few minutes how we first met, because it is, for me, very much part of this story. But after we did first meet, you were very kind. And, and I said to you that I'd never been into a control room. And you said, come to our Waterloo headquarters. And I'll never forget walking in and being struck by the atmosphere. It, it was calm, quiet, quiet really I can't even think of the right words I just thought it would be frenetic I thought the phones would be ringing off the hook we said there in the introduction up to seven thousand people making 999 calls every single day just in London can you describe how that control room is for you because it's a very very special place isn't it it's incredibly special
1: I think the first time I walked into one of our control rooms when I first started I knew that that was it for me. I wanted to be a a paramedic many, many moons ago uh, and had some back surgery that prevented me from putting both myself and and our patients at risk. So for me, my option in my head was the next best thing was to be in the control room. Uh, And now anyone that joins us or I talk about London Ambulance Service, the best job in the world is to work in the control room. It's the most serene environment. That's the Uh, word I was
0: looking for, serene.
1: It's serene. It's calm. It's passionate. It does give you goosebumps because I think people expect that that pandemonium, people calling across, people shouting, people being busy. And they are busy in a very controlled, very focused way. They know what they're doing. They've been trained to do the best that they can possibly do for anybody. If that's dispatching an ambulance, if that's ringing somebody back and advising of delay or giving some advice, or if that's answering the initial nine nine call, they give the absolute best care and advice to people that are calling. And because they do that, they are so calm in the way that they do that. They are the typical epitome of of swans or ducks. They are calm on that above exterior, um, and that's what you see. But inside, sometimes they're panicking, equally as, as any of us do. You know, inside you might be thinking, have I done that right? Have I done this? Have I considered that? But those people have got the most incredible support around them, and those are those peers. The same for myself the same for all of us in this organisation. We only have to look left, right, backwards or forwards or pick the phone up and we've got support. It's there. That's that's what we do. And that's what you'll hear us say a lot. That's just what we do. That's what's working for the London Ambulance Service.
0: Your swan analogy resonates with me because it's a bit like TV presenting. You're sort of the swan and you're paddling furiously below the surface in live television, except I'm not saving lives, Jules. And that's the, the big thing here, isn't it? That every call is potentially a life and death moment. And obviously, you say the staff are very well trained. How do they cope with sometimes not knowing, presumably more often than not, not knowing the outcome? So if they're helping somebody make a 999 call from home, who perhaps somebody's having a heart attack or stroke, is it a bit odd that sometimes you don't know whether that person did then make it? I think sometimes it's better not knowing.
1: Throughout my career, there's seven instances that that have probably shaped and made me as a person in the organisation, as as a career. Five of those are 999 calls that have always stayed with me. One of those will be my very first year, uh, and two of them are incidents that I've attended on behalf of the trust. So I think you get to a point where you know, as long as you've done everything you possibly could on that call or at that incident or for that patient, whether the outcome is good or bad or indifferent, As long as you've done your absolute best, there isn't any more you can do. And we ask staff to kind of understand that when that phone ends, when that call ends, sometimes it is easier not to know. Because if you took 70, 80, 90 calls in your shift and you knew the outcome of all of those and some of those wasn't positive, Would that make you come back to work the next day? Would that make you come back for your next set of shifts? So I think when they absolutely know they've done the best they can, and I always say to somebody, if they've had a difficult call or if they've questioned themselves, the fact is you answered the call. If you wasn't here and you didn't answer it, then I could understand why you're questioning yourself. But you did. You made the difference. If you wasn't sitting in that seat, if you wasn't connected with that headset, then you couldn't have made a difference. And they have every call that somebody answers in the London Ambulance Service makes a difference to someone's life.
0: It certainly does. And of course, now you've tempted me with those seven things that have shaped you. <laughs> Can you give me an example? Well, well, tell me about the major incidents, Jules, that, that you've been working on and on, on shift for and, and how they've shaped you. So I think it's really hard not to be shaped by
1: things that you see impact on so many people. Um, I attended Grenfell, and I think we've spoke before about that because it's close to your community. And I think when you go to an incident like that, there is so much outpouring of support locally from the community, but also from a staff point of view. And even now, on the anniversary that, that obviously took part very recently, People that were there with each other, even whether they're in the organization still or have moved on elsewhere in the NHS, we all still contacted each other because there's something that you have, a, a, an incident like that, that allows you to have that bond. And it's an unspoken thing. You don't need to say much. You just need to say that I'm thinking of you today, or I know that this is coming up, or I know that this is past and I just wanted to reach out. And they, they keep you grounded. They make you go home sometimes. they just be thankful for the roof that you have over your head, for the food that you have in the cupboards and the fridge. When you know some people don't have that or 999 calls that come through and the people are lonely, they're hungry in the winter, they don't have any heating, they're in one room of a house. It's heartbreaking. And the only thing you can do, the only thing that we have is our voice and the compassion that, that comes across with that and the time that that takes a cardiac arrest call with us on a 909 call could be completed in two minutes, three minutes when we have a, an under seven minute response time to, to our patients in cardiac arrest. However, when someone is lonely and cold and they don't have anyone else, you could be on that call for so much longer but it's because it's the right amount of appropriate care that you're giving to that person. In a cardiac arrest situation, your adrenaline is pumping, you're giving all of the information that you need to give them because you're saving someone's life physically, practically doing something. But when you're talking to someone, you almost imagine that you've pulled up a sofa, you've pulled up a chair or are sitting on the sofa, you're next to them, you're with them, and they just need a bit of reassurance. They just need some practical advice or a different care pathway that we can guide them down. And some of those calls will really take people's breath away. You don't expect to be fully engaged and for that to still have that ripple effect a few days after, I wonder what happened to that patient. Not so much. I wonder what happened to that cardiac arrest because that was practical. You know someone is there doing something instantly. Whereas has the referral happened? Has that social care gone through to that patient that I spent... 10 minutes we have on the phone talking to so it's those ones it's the really unexpected ones that stick with you uh, and for a of number course of
0: perhaps unexpected as well because you deal with them on your own and as you say on the yes. grenfell you're you're dealing with a team and i think it is appropriate now actually you've given me a very nice way of of saying how we met because actually it was probably six years ago because we've recently marked the fifth anniversary of the fire at Grenfell which you've got a good memory actually I can pretty much see it from my balcony and my children volunteered in the aftermath and we met at the 999 control rooms it was the first ever awards for 999 operators and I remember I didn't know you I was hosting in Nottinghamshire and I got a random message on my phone on Twitter saying I'm Jules Lockett I'm at the event and I wondered at the end of your script whether you could thank the organizers for putting on this event because a lot of the people you work with, not that you're looking for praise or reward, there are unsung heroes. And that award ceremony featured Grenfell as well as lots of other stories. I remember the Manchester Arena bombing where one of the control room operators found out his sibling had died in the bombing and carried on with his shift. But Grenfell really touched my heart because as those 11, I think it was only 11, responders walked up to get their award, it struck me that if I'd been sitting on the tube or on a bus opposite any of them, I wouldn't know who they were. And there they are, day in, day out, doing this extraordinary job. And the heartbreak that they felt, a bit like we just said, they did know who didn't survive because they saw the names in the paper. Yes. And instead of thinking about all the lives they did save, mm-hmm. I felt they were heartbroken because they knew that some lives they couldn't save. So that is when we met, and that, that had a massive effect on me. Yes, yes it
1: was It, it was incredibly I think I passed you in the lift as well. You did. It was with your mum and we'd passed in the lift and I, I thought, oh, I've sent you a message and you said, you just sent me a message. And it was to Mike who arranged that and Rio, they'd done the most incredible job. They reached out to, to organisations and really understood what unsung heroes are. And they are the people that work in control rooms that are very much behind the scenes. And some, sometimes I think unsung hero puts a little bit of pressure on people because it kind of may suggest that they are heroes. But they are often the person, as you say, that you, don't, you you pass them in the street and you have no idea that they've answered 102 999 calls and maybe saved four or five people's lives and delivered two babies. No one knows that. No one knows that when they're walking around the supermarket or when they're standing at a bus stop. And what our What colleagues doing in control rooms up and down the UK, as well as across the world, but certainly in the UK, which we were obviously recognising on on that very first one, is nothing less than remarkable, without a doubt. And to have collected the first ever Unsung Heroes Award was something I remember. I, I, I looked When I knew we was doing this, I looked at the photo when I was being presented and I, I was an emotional wreck. I thought to myself, I wonder who's going to have got, got this last award. And I remember sitting with Rio and I remember her keep looking at me and I'm thinking, why is she looking at me? And when they said all these wonderful things, I was looking around the room thinking that could be anybody in here. And when they called my name and I was presented by the gilhuli family, I remember being completely and utterly overwhelmed by emotion. The The recognition of working on that awards and and having so much impact on it, and you being able to say thank you, and then me getting an award was very, very touching. And that award is sitting very proudly at home. Is it? Yes, normally we're supposed to give our awards to the organisation to present, uh, to to have in in an area at Waterloo. There was no way I was letting that one go.
0: It was also a first for me in the, for the first time, I don't know why for the first time, but my agent was in the audience, and I have never, having done hundreds of events, I have never teared up on stage and I was completely like you were that evening, completely full of emotion. And just nice to see, not that any people who do this job are looking for big pats on the back, but how nice that it was just recognised, their hard work, their dedication was recognised. And that's very, very important, I think, because it is an unseen job that many people have no idea what happens and what goes on there. When you started in your early career, Did you answer the 999 calls? Very proudly. For seven years, I worked in the control room actively. I'm blessed
1: that I've come full circle. uh, And now as general manager, I still get to work in the the control room with people that there isn't anybody in the control room. And I'm not so sure anybody could say this in our organisation. There isn't anybody who works in one of our control rooms that I haven't either trained or been trained by wow
0: gosh that's impressive isn't
1: which it which is is great i've i've got the most incredible team of people that i work alongside they don't work for me they work alongside me we're an incredible team we're very supportive to colleagues but yeah i i, I stopped and thought the other day there isn't a single person that i haven't trained that's answering nine calls or dispatching resources across london that i haven't either trained or be trained by in God. my career which is it, that's a that's a brilliant thing
0: to say. That's fantastic when you think it's a 21 years since you yeah. first went to Waterloo. Are there any stories that really stick out from those old days when you were a very young operator and a new new operator, any stories that you think, oh my God, I'll never forget that call or what happened next?
1: Yeah, I, I can remember, say I can remember f- five calls and for various different reasons. One of those was was an abusive caller and I remember in how I thought and how I managed that and, and getting feedback and making sure that I had done the right thing because what I didn't want to do was be upset and offended by the call, but also not have done my job because that was that was incredibly, you know, I'm incredibly proud to wear this uniform and work for the London Ambulance Service. And others were calls that I knew I was completely engaged with. It was like I was there. That allowed me to move into training a- as I did because I could picture myself almost standing in this room, but on the other end of a phone in Waterloo. But I could tell you what the carpet looked like, what the lino was like in the kitchen, where the banisters were, what colour the door was, what the kitchen layout was. I pictured all of this in some of the calls because it allowed me to be part of it. Gosh, that's amazing. And I I can remember one of the calls was a cardiac arrest call. And I can remember so much detail when I kind of stopped and reflected on this and how I then get that across to colleagues now when they join us. For me, it's about being very much in the call. You need to understand and think of almost the worst case scenario. So for me, uh, one of mine was a, a cardiac arrest call. And they said that, that, that somebody had collapsed. They were there waiting to, to have Sunday lunch. My first instincts was to make sure everything in the oven was turned off. I must say that. I must say that. I must say that. So I was going through my call and going through and, and giving CPR instructions. And when I knew the crew were there, I said to the person on the phone before I let them go, can you just make sure everything's turned off in the kitchen? Because I thought they don't have time. They don't the last thing they need to do is come back and none of that's done or, or be delayed because they might not, you know, might not have that that foresight. And they could have done it already, but it's that kind of detail that you get so involved with, it is like you're there. And when you reflect on the the location, I thought, oh, the kitchen looked a bit like my nan's. The front room looked a bit like mine when I was a child. The front door looked like the very first front door I can remember as a child and and going in and out of. And I thought it's because it was comfort. It was comfort. It was what I could feel safe in. And the house could have been nothing like that at all. It could have been a small flat. It could have had a balcony and not a garden. But for me, I imagined that. So I was there with the person. And that's what I say to people now. Be part of the call because then you will absolutely do your everything for that person.
0: So it's an empathy thing, isn't it? And using visualisation to yeah. put yourself at the scene. And does that really help when you're training new operators? Do you pass on those kinds of stories so that they can put themselves in the caller's story
1: yes absolutely all of my time in training uh, i was in training for 14 years every part of that was was reflecting on on what i had experienced understanding there's there's policies there's procedures that we have a, as a trust and those are there to protect both our patients and our staff and make sure that everybody gets the same advice the same information and out of that comes our triage and people then get triaged appropriately. But actually, the way that you deal with that is very much about being about the person. I need to understand, I need to empathise, I need to be compassionate with this person. There'll be things that I've stopped and thought, I should have done that, or I could have been a little bit more this, I could have been a little bit more that. Did I ask that at the right time? Was it appropriate? All of those things. And those are the the important little nuggets that you need to share with people and even now in the role as general manager I still share those now with people when you're sitting talking I spend normally the first part of my day is talking to staff that are on duty and normally the last part is welcoming people in and and my one thing that I always say to people is when they're coming in on night shift I might be going home but I always say good morning
0: do you? That's yes. interesting.
1: My 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 greatest the greatest thing, and I always smile every time I head home, that I've just said good morning to people at around about seven o'clock in the evening. Because for them it's morning, and if I don't recognise it's their morning, then I don't appreciate the job that they do. And 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 it's important that they know that I'm going home but I know that you've only just started.
0: Yeah, it's very important. That's, it's very important, it? yeah. What was the moment, do you think, Jules, when you were doing 999 Controlling, where you thought, actually, I'd like to move into a training position and pass on your wisdom and your experience and help other people learn, rather than carry on on that trajectory of carry on being a, a 999 operator or a manager without the training side? What made you recognise in yourself that you'd, be, that you'd be good at it? I think I was so passionate. I remember... Uh, I remember
1: walking in on day one and people saying, you know, well, w- what would you like to, to do in 5, 10, 15 years' time uh, when we were, you know, that icebreaker moment on day one? And I remember sitting there saying, I'm going to have your job one day. And, yeah, I think I was probably very confident, overconfident and, and a bit bit cocky. And lo and behold, I was and I have done that job. And I think because I I care so much about, about staff. I care so much about the people that I work with. And quite clearly, people have seen something that, that was quite good in the, in the element of being able to share that experience. I think the one thing that you have to do is, as, as training, as an educator, you have to care. You have to care about what you're doing. And if you care about that, then you can share that caring element. And this job isn't for everybody. The job of working in a 909 control room isn't for everybody. And the job of educating and training people isn't for everybody. But I like the challenge. I like to see people develop and I've loved the opportunity. There's some people that I have trained that I now work alongside as as leaders. There's some people that I have trained that have gone out and worked into the operational and become paramedics and have become managers. For me, that's the greatest accolade. Even if I didn't get promoted. And I always say this to every uh, new group because now I get the opportunity to go and welcome people as a new group into training. And when I do that, I say to them, you could pay me half of the money you pay me. You could only pay me a proportion of it. I have the greatest job in the organisation and I probably have the greatest job in the UK. Uh, I wouldn't change my job for
0: anything. You're a very empathetic person and it doesn't surprise me at all that you're a leading light in mental health within the service too. How do you take care of people's mental health? Because we all have mental health issues away from working in a control room <laughs> but I would imagine that can perhaps impact people quite greatly because of their day-to-day work. It's it's quite stressful a lot of that work. It's really stressful.
1: I think probably the way that I do that is by, by sitting pulling up a chair and sitting next to them while they're doing their job there isn't anything I think that I I haven't already done in the control room so people know that I've done the job so if I'm talking to them and I and they're being frustrated about the job then I can understand that I know where they're coming from I think looking after the staff considering the job that they do and taking time to talk through what their concerns are and the the smallest of gestures it can be pizzas one weekend when it's particularly busy it can be bars of chocolate it can be ice cream it can be cold drinks on a warm day whilst they're material things they make a difference to people if you're particularly busy I'll go and get a tea trolley and I'll push it around the control room and I'll make people a cup of tea or I'll give them a a bottle of water because for me those are the things that are really important and if I can do it as a leader in the organisation then anyone can do it.
0: And, and that's that, listening as well, George. isn't And knowing that you have been through pretty much every scenario one can imagine, whether that be major London events or, or the very intimate 999 calls. You've been there. So I would imagine people feel that they can come and talk to you and say, this is how this made me feel, or what should I do about this, or how can I cope with that? And they know they're going to have a, a receptive ear with you.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think it's about sharing that. Actually, you can. they can say anything to me. I can guide them into any support mechanisms that we have, both in the organisation and external. And it's important that we have access to those networks, whether that be from a point of view of other emergency services, whether that be from an LGBT point of view, whether that's from a BAME point of view. We have to have those avenues and those support networks. And, and as an organisation, you can never stop improving on that element of wellbeing, that, that, that For what I refer to with my teams is wellness at work. I want people to feel well when they're at work because if they're well when they're at work, when they go home, they can be really well and that's important their downtime is is probably the most important thing yes there will always be opportunities for them to come to work they come in on their shifts. some people will come and do extra shifts for us but i will also notice if people have been in a lot and i will also be making sure that people go home and spend some time with their family or on their own or enjoying their hobby or actually just taking time doing nothing because that's so incredibly important for that recovery because they've got to give everything when they're at work. And no different for our leadership teams as well. It's incredibly important that they go home, that they rest, that they switch off, because they're constantly there and available for all of their teams as I am for them, but we all need to know when we need that that stop time. Just put that pause on, whether it's a day, whether it's an hour, whether it's 10 minutes, and it's, in, it's important that we encourage people to do that and have the confidence to, to open up and tell us when things aren't wrong, and we can do something about that. Every time there's something wrong with somebody, we can do something about that. We don't just help other people, we help each other, and we just need to know what people need, and we'll do it.
0: There's no I in team, hey? All about teamwork. The other things that struck me when I came to the control room all those years ago, I can't believe how time's flown. It's been a long time, is, you know, I'm passionate about London's air ambulance. Yes. And we both know the chief pilot and we were talking about the work the air ambulance does. Just tell us how your operators managed to choose the five or six calls a day that the helicopter goes to in London to save lives out of potentially 7,000 calls. How does that side of the ambulance service work? Yeah, now you put it like that,
1: Helen, I have to say that's probably <laughs> given me another bit, bit more food for thought. We're really fortunate. We work very closely with with the air ambulance, as you say. And we've got uh, an operator that works in with us and, it, and it's one of the paramedics on rotation. So the paramedics work on both the car aspects during the nighttime hours and then obviously also on the helicopter. So what they do is they, they are constantly scanning the calls that the 999 call operators are going through. And I can remember your eyes probably (laughs) getting beside when you was watching that. But they're scanning every single call out of those 7,000. They're reliant on a call handler thinking something doesn't sound quite right here. Something that the person has said has just given them a little trigger, something they've heard in the background or something that they may have even picked up that might be completely different we've got a set criteria that they kind of need to know any one of these calls and there's 12 or 13 different elements on there we need to consider whether that needs to be discussed with the with the hems we call the hems the london air ambulance uh, operator and that paramedic will go through some additional questioning which is very much about actually do we dispatch so it's a real cohesive piece of work and the 999 operator still listens into that so they understand the reason because the call might be passed back to them and <laughs> Or the call might be passed back to them and then they dispatch. But the, the call operator won't know that probably until a little bit after the call and then they can see the activity that's happened. But it will be a real combination of work and that's that collaboration. You've got so many parts that are dealing with that. You've got a 999 operator, you've got somebody in our dispatch element who's looking at what resources they need to send. It probably is a first arrival on scene. You've got our HEMS paramedic who is literally scanning off going through further information and then potentially dispatching the London's air ambulance.
0: Well, all this time, every second counts, doesn't it? So this is a very, very quick, calm process to work out whether to dispatch or not. I'm thinking in London, a lot of calls are shootings, aren't they? We have a lot of stabbings in stabbings, the capital. Yeah. So therefore, there's no time to waste, is there? those have to be clear, calm, fast decisions.
1: Yeah, and, and they're, they're very assertive. Some of the information, some people, I suppose if if you're listening and you're not really understanding what's happening on the other end of the phone, the information will be given. It will be very assertive, very firm. There's no discussion about this. You will do this. These are the instructions. I'm giving them to them. Please do them. That's it. Because you're right. Every second, every moment is is counting. In situations like stabbing shootings, cardiac arrest, we have to do that. And ultimately, as well, that the greatest thing that you hear is obviously babies being delivered, and, and every second counts there as well.
0: Have you delivered babies over the phone? I
1: have. It was a while ago. There's two things that that do give you goosebumps. I think even if you haven't done the job before, that's hearing somebody. It happened the other morning. I just walked in on duty, and I heard somebody say, "Congratulations!" Is it a boy or a girl? And I was like, "That. Oh my god." That's the greatest thing you can hear. And then, you know, half an hour, 20 minutes later, you hear somebody giving the instructions for cardiac arrest and you think, but that's what we do. That's what we do. That's why we put the uniform on. That's why we come to work. And that's why we work for the London Ambulance Service.
0: And that's why you have so much pride, I think, working for the London Ambulance Service, because you know that you're one of the best services in the world, Yes. um, because everybody pulls together. Technology, I would imagine, has changed, like lots of things have changed since your days in the control room at the beginning. And again, another thing that totally impressed me was when you demonstrated now that you can send somebody a link and actually your operator can see at the scene whether somebody's broken their leg or broken a bone. Tell us a bit about the technology and how that how that's helped with eyes on rather than just being a straight phone call.
1: Yeah, so our clinicians, and this was hugely helpful through the COVID, uh, through the pandemic situation, because it allowed our clinicians to be able to, to see what was actually needed and, and what response they could send, or actually give further advice. So these are clinicians that access that information. They are looking at the patient. So effectively, they're looking on an iPad, and it might be somebody's smartphone that they move around somebody's head injury. Maybe it's a a child or an elderly person who's fallen. What injuries do they have? Because realistically, does the patient need to go to hospital? Do we send a response that can actually deal with the patient there and then at home and they don't have to go to the hospital, which is great. Is it a point of view of actually we can get an alternative response there? Can we make a doctor's appointment? Can we make a referral for an x-ray? All of those things have started now to become available to us. And all of a sudden, you become much more than an ambulance service. You're actually treating the patient for the actual thing that they need to be treated for, rather than us taking patients to hospitals, which, as you'll know, know, you go to an emergency department and actually people can be sitting there for so long. Whereas actually, if we can triage slightly differently now with technology and it is moving at a pace and it will move at far more paces than, than, than I can probably even keep up with most definitely but that's exciting that's exciting for us as an organization it's exciting for our clinicians because they they can probably treat so many more patients and actually refer people to a much more appropriate level of care that protects our emergency departments for
0: those who absolutely need us you are definitely going to see much more change, I think, yes. over the over the coming years. And also, I would imagine you've witnessed a lot of change within the LGBT community and being part of that over the last twenty-one years. How have things changed, Jules? And how well are we doing at just just managing all this much better and being much more caring and thoughtful and understanding of, of colleagues who are part of the LGBT community? Pride Month that's
1: just gone has been great. It's a a great opportunity. I think not just for people to express themselves, but I think people to educate and and understand and learn. And even as an LGBT person and someone who is is a co-chair, there's always things that we can learn. There's things that will change all the time. I think it's a responsibility as somebody in the community to be able to educate and help people understand. I think it's a minefield. I think terminology and language is a minefield field for people nowadays whether that's older generations whether that's my generation I think it's probably changed very much for younger generations now because the terminology is being brought into schools into universities and people are much more fluent with terminology but I think it trips people up all the time but it is our responsibility to make information available to share that opportunity we have an app that he's shared that all of the ambulance services use, which is a joint response from a point of view of giving all of that clinical information and they access that in there. Now lies information that's for the LGBT community and that gives them direct access. There's terminology. So if somebody is referring to their self in a, in a particular sense, they can understand, they can go and they can look at that app. They can understand that information. It's referred to as JR Calc Plus, and it's an incredible use of, A way to say to people, if a patient represents themselves in the back of an ambulance or in the private area of their home and says, I'm transitioning, and somebody may not understand the transitioning, they can understand that. Or if they say that I'm pansexual, you can understand what that is. And I think from our point of view, we, we need to take that responsibility to allow people to be their self, whether that's we're treating the person in the community or whether that's in our organisation. We have that responsibility. Pride is great for one month out of the year, but I think we are proud in our organisation of the LGBT community. We are proud of those people that can openly talk to us and who can then, growing confidence to be able to be the person that they want to be at work. And we're, we are incredibly proud of them. For those people who are out and proud, for those who are on on the, the journey to come out, whatever people need, we are an inclusive employer. Uh, and it's it's so lovely to see younger people uh, celebrating their sexuality and their gender and all that they are, because that's, that's what we are. We want people to celebrate who they are in our workplace.
0: I think as a mum of two teenagers, you are right the younger generation just understand it perhaps better than the older generation but you were saying today when I arrived that sometimes people get your your sexuality modelled up and that's astonishing to me
1: I get misgendered an awful lot and it can be incredibly frustrating sometimes some of the battles are not worth having I've been asked to to leave female changing rooms. I've been questioned when I go into a female toilet and that can be hurtful. It can chip away. There's some days that you can shrug it off. There's some days that you sometimes challenge it. There's some days that you kind of think, is, is the battle worth having? But equally, I have a responsibility sometimes to challenge that. Uh, But sometimes the the battle can be a little bit too much and it's my my partner will sometimes have the battle on my behalf in a very much more calm and measured way sometimes than I possibly could. Because sometimes I just think, just go with it, just let it go. And if people misgender, if people get things wrong, there's one simple way of dealing with it, it's to apologise and move on sorry, I got that wrong. How would you like to be referred to? Or or, or I'm so sorry, I wasn't really paying much attention. So my apologies. And move on. Don't over-exaggerate. Don't over-apologise because that draws even more attention to it. And if people get something wrong, think about the impact on the person. So actually, a, a swift, sorry, really sorry, and forget it, move on. But it's important that we learn to understand the impact on other people. It's no different to getting someone's nationality incorrect. Just we would ask, can I ask what your nationality is? Can I ask the, the country of origin? That's almost an accepted question. But would we ask somebody, is it, is it sir, is it madam, is it, can I ask? So actually, if you do get it wrong, either apologise or don't get it wrong by don't referring to someone as sir or madam. Or it's mistress. so
0: simple, isn't it? It's, it is. it's it's a bit of kindness and a bit of thought and yeah. uh, and an acknowledgement that that thank the Lord everybody is is unique and different. Absolutely, and it, it would be a very boring place. <laughs> it would be a very boring <laughs> place. Just on a, a a final thought, Jules. What are you most looking forward to over the next year and and the challenges that that are coming this year for you? So I think
1: you're right, technology is changing, and that's going to be great. We've got a new control room coming, which is going to be very, very exciting for our staff. And that's great for us in the London Ambulance Service. We'll move both with, with new equipment, with new exciting environment for staff, and staff are at the heart of that. What do they want? What makes them well when they're not taking 9 calls and dispatching ambulances? And say so technology is hugely, hugely improving. And a lot of that. We've got, uh, we're turning greener, most definitely. Good, um, good. And, and definitely. And um, we've got some, uh, some different vehicles coming and that's very exciting. Uh, and I think, uh, again, as our generation is changing in the organisation, we have to be a responsible employer. We have to be responsible to the environment. And I think good working places that allow people to be happy, confident, well in what they do, as well as treating the environment well, our communities uh, and each other, is is only ever going to improve working working here with us.
0: Promise we don't leave it another five years. I think... we need a drink, we're overdue a drink, can't we? Most definitely. Peppermint tea
1: might not cut it. Peppermint
0: tea doesn't (laughs) cut it. Shall we do a glass of wine next time we see you and not in five years' time? Most
1: definitely. Let's make a date. Uh,
0: I've been talking about doing this for a long time, so I'm glad that we finally got a date in the diary. And I know your diary has been packed because you've got so much on. So thanks for making time, Jules. I mean, I could sit here actually all day listening to your stories and please keep doing what you do and keep inspiring your teams because everybody is really appreciative and it's, it's nice to raise that profile sometimes.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to meet you again, Helen, and I promise we won't leave it so long.
0: Good, good. You've been listening to Jules Lockett, General Manager of the Emergency Operations Centre for London's Ambulance Service, an LGBTQ plus representative on the National Ambulance Service LGBT Network, as well as the London Ambulance Service LGBT Network. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or you can search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours I'll be back next week with another great guest so I'll see you then